0: As talk of impeachment heats up in the nation's capital, Missouri Senator Roy Blunt is arguably in the eye of the political storm. The veteran Republican is a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, one of the legislative bodies looking into President Donald Trump's conversations with Ukraine's president.
1: Our committee, uh, which normally spends our time talking to the FBI and the CIA and the defense intelligence people as well as as the NGA people have been asked again to look at a specific thing.
0: On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and Joe Manis join me to break down how Blunt is reacting to the prospect of impeachment. We also talk with the Kansas City Stars Jason Hancock about how Missouri is struggling with the concept of open government. Let's hit the music.
1: is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody
0: to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build
2: my name where I didn't have the money.
0: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio in St. Louis today is...
3: Julie O'Donoghue.
0: And...
2: Um, Interim... Sometimes political person Joe Manis, uh,
0: the Great Dame of Missouri <laughs> politics reporting. Uh,
2: so sound like Great Dane. I like
3: that.
0: I I don't know who came up with that, but I, I I'm gonna use it. This is our second roundup show, and we're gonna be talking with Kansas City Star lead political reporter Jason Hancock about the perils of open government in Missouri. But first, we're gonna talk about a, a few issues that percolated around the news over the week. And we're gonna start with. The thing that's on everybody's mind, impeachment. Specifically, we're going to talk about how Missouri senators are approaching impeachment. Josh Hawley, the junior senator from Missouri, has been a pretty boisterous defender of President Trump as he's more and more embroiled in this Ukraine presidential conversation, imbroglio. Is that the right word? Imbroglio? Is that a word?
3: i think so scandals controversy i've always thought it was imbruglio but i'm not sure
0: i'm not sure but you know he sent out a tweet a few weeks ago saying we face a crisis on the southern border a crisis of meth pouring into our towns a crisis of youth suicide an epic fight with china for our jobs and maybe our national security and the democrats top priority is to impeach real donald trump says it all so He pretty much falls in line with a lot of other Republicans who have reacted to impeachment this way. But I actually think that Senator Roy Blunt's reaction has been a lot more interesting, and I'm gonna give a little bit of an example of his reaction. This is him talking to reporters in St. Louis last week.
1: Putting the facts together on the most recent House allegation is important, Uh, and then reaching conclusions. I would say that over the last couple of days, Uh, not things I heard when we talked to the inspector general the other day or to the acting defense intelligence person, but seeing what I'm seeing develop in the media itself, uh, knowing what the attorney general was doing with foreign governments at the same time, knowing that the secretary of state was on the call in question, I think is, is helpful new information and understanding what the president may have had on his mind. Uh, I would still anticipate that we're largely going to see a partisan exercise uh, in the House who I believe they've reached the conclusion that a majority of their members, if not all of their members, are ready to move on the impeachment question. And I think they're likely to do that no matter where the facts lead. Uh, but then we'll see what happens after that.
0: I'll start with Joe. What do you make of Blunt's reaction to the Trump impeachment saga?
2: Well, I've, known, I've covered him in some ways for over 30 years, so in some ways the the nuance coming out of Blunt um, is not surprising to me on something like this. I think that um, he's on the Intelligence Committee. He probably knows stuff. He doesn't... He's not inclined to necessarily have a knee-jerk reaction where he's out there in front like some Republicans, you know, shouting, doing some of the stuff that Holly's doing. Um, that's not Blunt's style. I think in this case, while his vote may be the same, you know, defending the, the president, I think that he is trying to display that he's taking all this stuff seriously. I think Blunt also wants to know how things go, where things are going with this. Um, it's unclear whether Blunt uh, plans to run for re-election in 2022. He hasn't said, but I think Blunt, Used to be the good government guy in Jeff City over 30 years ago. And in some cases, I think this sort of reflects where he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I just want to quickly mention one of the things that happened today is outgoing um, U.S. Rep. John Shimkus, who's a Republican from nearby Illinois, Collinsville, just came out and said that he doesn't support Trump. Of course, he's not running for reelection. But the point I'm getting at is that there's some cracks uh, in the Republican wall, and I think that Blunt's wariness kind of fits in with that.
3: Yeah, I would also say that the senator is on the Senate Intelligence Committee is not a small factor. Right. It's probably very appropriate for people on the Senate Intelligence Committee not to be coming out and speculating about what's happening. He'll be intimately involved if the House votes for impeachment. And I think probably the responsible and appropriate thing for not just Senator Blunt, but Democrats and others on that committee is to keep their mouth shut. So, so in that in that respect, I think this is probably what we want to see out of the senator is someone who is holding back his feelings or opinions on this issue
0: now. For Missouri political reporters, the talk of impeachment is not a new phenomenon. (laughs) We're a little over a year removed from the potential what was the potential impeachment of then Governor Eric Gritens, a Republican, a Republican. And he eventually resigned. And Mike Parson became governor. And regardless of what you feel about him on issues, because there's certainly a lot of people that don't like him on policy, it's definitely become a lot less unstable politically. In Missouri. So when I mentioned that to Senator Blunt, I then asked this question to him: Do you think it would be more functional for the country if maybe President Trump stepped aside voluntarily and let Vice President <laughs> Pence be? President? You know,
1: I think I think voters in the country get to make these kind of decisions. I think they knew exactly the kind of person they were getting when they voted for President Trump in our state by overwhelming numbers. Uh, and his what, what's happening at the border now very helpful. What's happening in our economy very helpful. What's happening in the reversal of the excessive regulation very helpful. Uh, and uh, families in our state are beginning to see that. I heard the speaker of the house uh, today on a radio uh, broadcast uh, was rep- was saying that she believes they're getting close to moving USMCA, something another big issue for our state that's going to be an improved relationship because of the president's leadership. Uh, And I think voters are the best judge of who they vote for and who then works for them.
0: I'm not super surprised by that response because had Blunt said, yes, I do think that President Trump should resign and let Mike Pence be president. That would have made national news. And I don't think he as much as I want to say I'm like an all powerful reporter that provokes people to make national news. I'm not that naive.
2: Well, I think uh, one key point here is that Blunt made those remarks before all the uproar this weekend over Syria and uh, Trump's knee-jerk decision to pull the U.S. troops back. And now and now uh, Turkey is going after the Kurds, who used to be our allies in the fight against ISIS. And this has got a lot of Republicans in an uproar. And while it may not change their view regarding impeachment, it's kind of muddied the uh, message. And, it, and because many of them are... Attacking uh, the president are very upset about it.
3: So I don't know that he said anything personally, and I only know this because I just Googled it. (laughs) Uh, But they did. His office sent a statement to the Springfield news leader saying he wishes the president would reconsider with the withdrawal from Syria. So they said that they were worried about the Kurds. But I I think that's in
2: line with, with Blunt's general views as far as this in the past. I'm not I'm not
3: surprised.
0: Moving on to another topic that you also paid attention to today, gambling and potentially illegal gambling depending on the eye of the beholder. Yeah. <laughs> explain explain the situation. There's a hearing in Jefferson City today about these like I guess they're video slot machines that are popping up in gas stations and I guess the conflict over them is the company that operates them, I assume, does not want them to be under state regulation. They don't want to have to pay the taxes that come with that. But obviously, a lot of state legislators are concerned. Am I I getting the background right, Julie? Yeah.
3: So there are these machines. And it's important to note that all the regulators in the state, the Gaming Commission, the State Highway Patrol, and actually the Prosecutors Association today believes these machines are illegal. So there is some argument from lawmakers and certainly from the people who own the machines that they're not legal. But the prosecutors' that association, they are legal. I'm sorry, that they are legal. But the prosecutors' association today, which is one of a few groups now, they couldn't figure out a way that you could interpret these machines as legally operating. So, um, so there's a lot of groups that think they're operating illegally. These machines have been put in gas stations, uh, things like Elks Lodges and VFWs and uh, convenience stores across the state. Um, They are wreaking havoc, according to the state police, in terms of their gambling enforcement unit, because I think they said somewhere around 140 complaints have been made this year of illegal gambling operating. And they only have two officers who are available to look into that so they're having to like devote resources to this is it
0: clear and, and this may be a stupid question but if you put money into this machine and you win do you get money back
3: you do there are some questions though if they're just operating in stores or your local Elks Lodge and no one from the gambling Commission is checking the machine to see if it's operating appropriately whether the machine is ever going to let you win Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. You could potentially rig the machine to never allow anybody to win. I'm not saying that is happening.
3: And that would be illegal. Yeah, I'm
0: just saying without somebody checking that, there's no way to know.
3: Some of the people who are very upset about these machines are casinos uh, because the casinos think, well, my machine gets checked, my slot machine gets checked, there are no taxes that are being paid on these machines. And a lot of people in the, I would say, traditional gambling industry are upset because they feel like the machines have an unfair advantage. Most slot machines, traditional slot machines, have to be in a certain place, and taxes are paid on that machine, and that machine is inspected to make sure it is operating appropriately.
0: Now, now I'll explain my own personal biases on this. I used to be what I would consider addicted to gambling when I was in high school. So I'm not a fan of gambling personally, and I don't gamble at casinos or any other place. But gambling is legal in Missouri at casinos, and a lot of the money has been promised to go to education. And I think that I understand companies wanting to try not to be under the regulatory arm of Missouri because it's cheaper not to be. But Joe, for a lot of people that in Missouri who accept the concept of gambling because maybe the money goes to a noble purpose, this seems like a betrayal of that promise if it's not going to, to a worthwhile cause of education.
2: Well, that's why the Missouri Lottery Commission actually has come out claiming that they're losing millions a year uh, because of these machines. And they're highlighting what Julie just talked about as far as the lack of regulations. But their key message is, we're being robbed of money that could be going to help education. I mean that's their message. And I think so that will kind of feed into what they hope will be a move to either get rid of the machines or put them under under state control or at least state oversight.
0: And Julie, did anybody testify from the company that operates these machines at this hearing?
3: So, no. Now, admittedly, I was listening to the hearing, I was not at the hearing, so uh, no, I actually expected people from the companies that own the machines to testify, um, but no one did. The closest that we had was a uh, convenience store, gas station convenience store association. I apologize. I'm forgetting the name of it exactly. Uh, and they actually didn't address the fact that the machines were in some of those uh, types of vendors. They sort of were looking forward to like what the legislation might be next year. Uh, but no one kind of got up and said, yes, these machines are legal. Uh, the only people who testified said the machines were illegal. I would say the most interesting testimony today was from the guy who's sort of the head of the Missouri Elks Lodges. And he was saying he's upset because his Elks Lodge, which has a bingo license, gets inspected on the regular. And the inspector has to drive by one of these convenience stores or gas stations that has these operating like machines. To come inspect his Elks lodge and the bingo license, and the bingo is used to raise money for things like prom for people with disabilities. Yes. I mean, so I think that this is bringing out a lot of strange uh, factions, um, and and the issue is a little bit more complicated than it just seems.
0: Very much so. We'll be back with the Kansas City Stars, Jason Hancock, right after this message. And we're back on Politically Speaking, and we're joined now by Jason Hancock. He's the Kansas City Star's lead political reporter. And he had a very interesting article over the weekend about a controversy that stems back to the Eric Greitens administration and involves a self-destructing text application that many people within that administration had on their phones. Rather than me explain this story for you, Jason, I want you to explain to our tens and tens of listeners what you found.
4: Well, that lawsuit has been going on since December of 2017. And recently, the state auditor's office released a closeout audit of Eric Greiton's administration. That's pretty routine. Anytime a statewide official leaves office, the auditor's office comes in, does a review of the internal workings of the office to basically help out the next administration to, uh, to, to work out best practices. Well, one of the pieces of that audit, it was a really small detail, it was in the background, it wasn't in the formal audit, was that the Greitens administration in the last few months before he resigned spent about $200,000 on this lawsuit. This was three months, I believe, that a private uh, law firm in Kansas City called Brian Cave was representing Eric Greitens in that lawsuit. And so I set out to find out, well, what was the total cost? Because again, this was just the three months. So I spent a couple weeks, a few weeks, trying to get invoices, trying to get information uh, regarding the cost of that lawsuit. And it was a lot harder than it probably needed to be. The attorney general's office turned over records really quickly, like within days, because they administer the legal expense fund. But that was only about $26,000 that one attorney was paid over the course of the you know, year, almost two years of that lawsuit. The governor's office just waited about three weeks, then responded that they didn't have any invoices. I finally was able to get some records, not the invoices, but some records out of the Office of Administration, which is the agency that handles billing and contracting. And that determined that the, over the course of about a year and some change, the, uh, the governor's office, out of their budget, spent about $340,000 on private attorneys to defend them in this litigation against uh, that challenged the use of confide in the uh, the governor's office.
3: One thing that confuses me, Jason, is like whether Governor Parson, it seems like the office went out of their way to tell you that this litigation started under Greitens. Does Governor Parson's office, are they obligated to continue with this litigation? Are they making a choice to do that?
4: I mean, presumably they're making a choice. I mean, the the litigation was against the governor's office, and so they are defending the office. That's why the litigation didn't go away when Eric Greitens resigned. And there's no evidence that people in Parsons' office are using or were using that same app, Confide. Now, there were some holdovers from the Greitens administration that were using a different self-destructing text message app, one that was called Silent Phone that sort of migrated over from the highway patrol. That's a whole other story that's been pretty controversial in how the Highway Patrol was using it. But um, there were people who were using it under Gritens, who stayed on with Parsons that continued to have that app. But that's not the focus of the litigation.
0: It seems that there are other ways for politicians to evade open records laws besides self-destructing apps. I'm actually going to play a clip now from former Governor Jane Nixon. And he talks about his email habits when he was governor, or I should say more accurately, his lack of email habits.
1: Unfortunately, the thing that's been hard for me getting back to practicing law is sending emails because I just didn't send any as governor. Yeah. I mean, I, I just didn't. And so I I spent the first uh, two months um, after church on Sunday afternoons, had a regular uh, appointment with the help desk to learn how to use a computer. I figured if I could run the state, well, I could do that.
0: Well, I think what Governor Nixon, he didn't say this explicitly, but how a lot of politicians, not only in Missouri but elsewhere, kind of evade open records laws is just by talking about official business verbally or over the phone and not actually leaving any written electronic evidence of it. I think that that's not uncommon to just Nixon from not only my reporting, but your reporting as well.
4: No, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of elected officials who just think it's more trouble than it's worth, you know, pick up the phone. I mean, one of the pieces that I found most fascinating in reporting on Greitens was their attorney at the time? Her name was Sarah Madden. That's one of the that's the one of the people who are potentially going to get deposed in the Confide lawsuit. She sent out this uh, PowerPoint presentation that was training for the office, and I believe it was used throughout the administration on, you know, uh, abiding by the Sunshine Law. And one of the one of the the pages of the PowerPoint that stuck out to me, and I wrote a whole story about it, was just there was one slide that was just the phrase "Do not text on your work phone." 10 times over and over again. They were trying to hammer that point home like, don't text, get up, walk down the hall, have a conversation. It didn't explicitly say why don't text, but the, the message was clear that don't create a record. If you if it's a simple conversation, just go have it. Don't create a written record that could then have to be turned over. And to their defense, could be misinterpreted if it's out of context or it's just, you know, if you've ever gotten texts in a, in a records request, typically they're screenshots. And they're not always cropped in a way in which you get the context of that message. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of elected officials in their office go out of their way to avoid just creating records, let alone having to retain them and turn them over.
3: Yeah, I I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that this is an issue, obviously, on the national stage, too. It is part of the conversation about Hillary Clinton and her private email server. I believe she said she was using it because it was, quote, easier, but it also allowed her to have control over her records and not to have to turn them over. In other words, they weren't on the federal system. I I, the other thing I wanted to say though about the Confide app, and I want to ask you about this, Jason. Um you know, in, in the Governor Nixon situation where he's not emailing anyone, there are probably members of his staff that are sending emails. When everyone's using Confide you have a much larger, at least to me, it seems like you'd have a much larger group of people that aren't creating records.
4: No, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole, that's the fear with confide is you have this thing that it's not just that you're not creating records, you are creating a record. You're just destroying it immediately. There's no possible way to retain it. So even if they were just using it for, as they said, which their explanation for using it was a little bit farcical. It was was kind of ridiculous. They were trying to say that they were only using Confide for logistical and scheduling purposes, which if you've ever used the app, you know, you get a message on the app and it just blocks. And you have to scroll your finger over it to reveal the copy. And once the words are revealed, the moment you leave them, they just delete. And so I can't think of a less convenient way to do scheduling or tell someone like, hey, meet me at the corner of state and Maine. Right, um, it's just you can't gone go immediately. Back.
3: you can't go back and be like, oh, where are we supposed to meet again? Right,
4: and you can't take screenshots, you can't save. The app is designed to burn the message. Over the past session, there was
0: legislative proposals to close off certain records that legislators would have to produce if they were subject to an open records request. And I think that some of the proposals were actually quite broad and would have included like pretty much anything that was that was done. Jason, I think both of us were following this pretty closely because we are, are not disinterested observers in this as members of the press. Uh, why do you think nothing ended up passing on this? And could you see something resurrecting itself in 2020?
4: Yeah, I can't see a world in which they don't try to carve out some exemptions for their records. I mean, it's worth noting the House doesn't provide all records that some would argue it legally should. It passed its own rule internally that allowed for the redaction of certain information or withholding certain information. There was recently a bit of a kerfuffle between Representative Peter Meredith in St. Louis and the Attorney General's office. He wanted the AG to weigh in on whether the House rule was constitutional, and the Attorney General took a pass. But I think the reason it didn't pass, I mean, it's, you know, you'd like to think there are these big esoteric reasons or this big policy debate, but I remember the Senate sponsor was Senator Ed Emery. I asked him about that bill near the end of session. And he was just like, yeah, I mean, it's something I'm interested in, but there's a lot of things that are priorities. And I just think we're going to run out of time. You know, it ended up being attached to another bill that dealt with local uh, officials being able to take lobbyist gifts. um, And that became very convoluted and very complicated. So I don't think there was it was a matter of there wasn't support for carving out the legislature from some of the sunshine laws provisions. I just think that it the, the time ran out before they were able to really uh, to, to hammer down the details. So I have no doubt in my mind that that'll be another issue that comes up next year when the legislature returns. When
0: Clean to Missouri was being debated, some opponents of the Sunshine Law piece argued that opening legislative records to open records requests would reveal a lot of sensitive constituent information, not only to journalists, but people that want to get that information. When I had then-Senator Rob Schaaf on the podcast back then, and he was a major surrogate for Clean Missouri. I don't know if he was an official surrogate, but he said this to me.
1: If if Clean Missouri passes, then it will be up to the legislature to lay out the rules about emails. And so the legislature would perfectly be able to pass uh, sensible laws that would protect that confidential stuff, like you call me up and you have a problem with the— with the Department of Revenue or something, you know, that wouldn't be, you know, sunshineable. But yet it could be that, you know, other things would be
0: sunshineable. So right now it's the Wild West out there. Is this muddying the waters a little bit if the advocates for this initiative that created this ability to get legislative emails are said during the campaign that it would be fine if legislators restricted emails in certain circumstances and now some of those same advocates are objecting to closing constituent emails for certain purposes.
4: Yeah, I mean, it does seem like the ground has shifted a bit. I I always think about this as, you know, departments like social services, Department of Health, you know, people, the Children's Division, which handles some pretty awful situations, have lived and abided by the Sunshine Law for decades without any sort of issue. I mean, I'm sure there have been issues, but you know what I mean. Like The exemptions exist in the law, and if the legislature thinks it needs certain exemptions to protect sensitive information, whatever they deem that to be, they can certainly pass a law to, to make those exemptions.
0: And we're back with Joe Manis and Julia O'Donohue, and we're going to debut a new segment on this podcast that memorializes and commemorates a major event in Missouri political history. And three years ago this week was the presidential debate that was held at Washington University in St. Louis. It was a showdown of epic proportions between then Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton and then Republican nominee Donald Trump. And the two candidates got very personal with each other and you can hear from this clip that there were times when the current president got a little chippy about the moderators
1: the kurds have been our best partners in uh syria as well as iraq and i know there's a lot of
0: concern about that in some circles but i think they should have the equipment they need so that kurdish and arab fighters on the ground are the principal way that we take raqqa after pushing isis out of iraq thank you very much we're
2: gonna yeah, move what's on funny. she you got-
1: went over a minute over and you don't stop her when i go one second over it's like you had many it's answers really, it's really very interesting we got a question over here from uh,
0: wow it was almost like a window into the future wasn't it I said this on Twitter that I thought Washington University did a fabulous job organizing this debate. It was easy to sign in, it was easy to park, Spin Alley was very well organized. I found the debate to be really lackluster. I thought that the topics that they treaded on were kind of inconsequential. They didn't talk about Ferguson or policing relations with African-Americans, even though Ferguson's 10 miles away from Washington University. Joe, you were there too. You may have a different impression than me, but I'd be interested in your take.
2: Well, this was our second debate. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, it got extremely personal. This is the debate, uh, if listeners may recall, where at one point Trump was looming right behind Hillary Clinton on the TV and uh, screens all over the country. And to this day, I think she should have turned around and said, what are you doing? I think that most of the questions were fairly decent. I agree with you. There were some topics that weren't touched on. But um, this actually, in some ways, ended up, it may end up being Washington University's swan song after several
3: debates.
0: So we're going to go around the table. and I'm going to ask each one of you what your favorite debate that you covered as a reporter was.
3: I think it was the most recent one I covered for a statewide candidate was a debate that included Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. Um, But also, I'm reluctant to call this my favorite, I'll just say. Uh, Also, David Duke was on the stage for this debate, and Foster Campbell, who was running against Senator John Kennedy. David Duke being in the mix made it kind of a crazy debate. It, It was certainly memorable. He started shouting things at the end. I don't think they literally brought a curtain down on him, but they cut his mic. Like right at the end. And there was a lot of speculation about whether Raycom, the television station, had like sort of chosen a poll that put David Duke in the debate um, in order to draw more eyeballs. Joe. Well,
2: regional debate would be uh, lots of them, but I would say the 2018 one between now US Senator. Josh Hawley, the Republican, and then U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, the Democrat, that we that uh, St. Louis Public Radio co-sponsored, and that was right next door. And this it was
0: nominated for an Emmy. We did not win the Emmy, though.
2: Oh, we should have.
0: It, it's okay. <laughs>
2: but my personal favorite is the 2008 vice presidential debate, which was hosted at WashU between then Vice President, uh, or, well, soon to be Vice President Joe Biden. And uh, the Republican nominee, uh, Sarah Palin. And the reason is less because of them, although that was fascinating, but because John Oliver, who was then one of the comedians for The Daily Show, which was then hosted by John Stewart, was there and sat be- next to me and another between me and another post-dispatch reporter and did this whole skit right before the... Uh, debate was to start, and we were supposed to pretend like we weren't listening to him while he's talking to us and making these monologues, and we were supposed to pretend like we were really working.
0: Actually, my favorite moment at a debate was in 2008 in the infamous uh, Missouri ninth Congressional District contest, and it was a Republican debate between blaine Luke DeMeyer, Bob Onder, Danny Moore, and Brock Levo. The reason this sticks out in my mind is one of the questions amazingly was who is your favorite founding father and i kid you not brock olivo and danny moore answered abraham lincoln and ronald reagan what you there's a pause yes, they're, we they're, they're get tar- that. yeah
2: <laughs> i'm a history buff and yeah he, they were he was about 80 years old.
0: <laughs> on that note i want to thank both julie and joe for being here today Shula Newman is the executive editor of St. Louis Public Radio. Fred Ehrlich is the editor of the politics team. John Larson is our sound engineer. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at
2: jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S.
3: You
0: can follow Julie on Twitter at
3: jsodonohue.
0: See you next time, everybody.